Well, stand with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text, and you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18 is where we're going to be, and if you don't have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be there in front of you. You'll, pay, you'll find today's text on page 927. As we continue our march through this wonderful book of Acts, we uh, come today to see how Paul went about his business of planting uh, the church in Corinth, and we want to look at the first 17 verses of this chapter today. So let me uh, read that passage, and then uh, we'll begin together. So listen once again as uh, God does speak to you uh, now through his perfect word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about your words, names, and own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who is a God of promise that you are abundant in your faithfulness, that you are unchanging in your truthfulness. And so as you speak that word of promise to us today, by your word and spirit, we ask that you would comfort our hearts, that you would sustain our hearts, that you would encourage our souls, that we might be found faithful at the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Sometimes the, the spirit, doesn't he seem to staple uh, certain sermons to your heart. Uh, You might know the kind of 
sermon of which I speak, the one that maybe just has a, a simple phrase or a simple exhortation, that even though you've forgotten the entirety of the rest of the sermon, it's a, it's a phrase or an exhortation that sticks with you through years and maybe even sustains you through difficulty. Or it can kind of be the sermon that the Spirit staples to your heart in a way that you return to it often, uh, listening to it in certain seasons of life. And I have one such sermon, and I do genuinely believe by a noticeable measure. It's a sermon that I've listened to more than any other sermon. It was originally delivered some 30 years ago at a pastor's conference. And the preacher there that day uh, delivered a message that he titled, Preaching Through Adversity. And because he was speaking to a bunch of, of pastors, what he wanted to do on this topic of preaching through adversity is try to learn something from the life and ministry of an old English preacher named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Because if you know anything about Spurgeon's life, he faced much adversity. And uh, this pastor began that message uh, by quoting from one of Spurgeon's lectures to his pastoral students, where he said this, one crushing stroke has sometimes been what the Lord used to lay the minister very low. The brother most relied upon becomes a traitor. Ten years of toil do not take so much out of the life of us as we lose in a few hours by Hithophel the traitor and Demas the apostate. And he began to speak to these pastors about the reality of the pastoral ministry, going on to say, the question for us is not how do you live through unremitting criticism and distrust and abandonment and accusation. The question for us, he goes on to say, is how do you preach through it? How do you preach doing the heart work when your heart is under siege and ready to fall? How do you preach to the heart when your heart is failing? And it's a question that strikingly belongs to our passage today. Because in ways that many Christians don't understand, uh, the Apostle Paul was, of course, a man just like us. Uh, therefore, the Apostle Paul was a minister whose heart would fail. And we come to perhaps the singular text in all of Acts that shows us how Paul, in the face of his heart failing, continues to persevere in the midst of his ministry. Because we left off last week in Acts chapter 17, Paul was in Athens. He, he was there waiting on his associates, Silas and Timothy, to come down from Berea. Uh, we saw that Paul was walking in and around the city of Athens, and he noticed that it was a city under the spell and strength of idols. So he began to preach Jesus Christ. We talked about this gospel of the sovereign creator that was heralded from Paul's mouth there in Athens. And it caused a noticeable degree of attention to come in Athens. So they grabbed him and they took him up to Mars Hill. They took him up to the Areopagus and they wanted to hear more about Paul and what he was declaring to be true. And in that great sermon there at the Areopagus, he preached that gospel of the sovereign king, whose, of course, name is Jesus. And if you glance back to the conclusion of that sermon, it's simply a response that was commanded, verse 30 and 31 of chapter 17, that God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And we know that man's name is the resurrected king, the sovereign creator himself, Jesus Christ. So what he was doing in that sermon was 
applying the truths of God to a city under the captivity of idolatry. And we said last week that although in the Cullen County area where most of us live, it's not a city like ancient Athens where a historian would say you would be more likely to meet an Athenian idol than an Athenian citizen. There were streets, stores, and shelves full of idols. Uh, we, we certainly live in a context today that may not have these streets and stores and shelves full of all these external and visible idols. But we no doubt live in a city, we live in a county, we live in a country that's given over in all kinds of ways to idolatry. And we know that the human heart is an assembly line of idols, and one of the idols that many Christians in the Western church of our time has taken and hidden away for strength and comfort is really the idol of comfort, of safety, and relief. When the stress and suffering comes, many Christians don't know what to do because they have believed that animating power and even that energy and strength comes from comfort. But in reality, students, the question that you need to reckon with and seek to answer from today's text is not, will I suffer, but how will I suffer? Uh, Because the Lord Jesus Christ was clear himself, wasn't he? And he talked to his apostles, telling them in the Gospel of John that in this world, you will have tribulation. Uh, The apostles already in this book that we've been studying for many months now have declared to the earliest Christians through many tribulations You must enter the kingdom of God. So the question before us today as we come to Paul's planting of the church at Corinth is how will you persevere when your heart is failing? How will you endure when afflictions, anxiety, and anguish seem to crush your soul? That's what's going to be in our text today with Paul. And answering those questions is simple enough from our passage. It really is the main point. God's presence enables his people to persevere. That's what you're meant to see among the other things. But centrally, I want you to see this morning that God's promised presence, it fuels our perseverance. So we're going to see that in four parts. And we'll begin, first of all, with partners in ministry. Because notice again, verse 1 of chapter 18. Uh, We're told that Paul left Athens and, and went to Corinth. It's noticeably different from him going from one city to the next in the previous parts of Acts where he's not harried out of the city, kind of hurried off with opposition and intimidation. It's as though he just kind of quietly slips out of Athens and he goes some 50 miles southwest to Corinth. And as we've been studying this book, I've often had the occasion to converse with church members who have told me about trips in years past that they have made to Greece and been able to follow in the footsteps of Paul as he went about his missionary journeys. And so when they come to a text like Corinth, there are certain scenes and pictures and experiences that immediately come into mind. But I suppose most of us in the room have not been to Greece and followed in the footsteps of Paul. So what do you need to know about Corinth? Well, you need to know it was one of the largest and most influential cities in Greece. If Athens was the cultural center of Greece, Corinth was the commercial center of Greece. It was home famously to the Isthmian Games, which rivaled even the Olympics of its time. Uh, Corinth itself is on an isthmus, so it was this vital port city that connected the eastern and western parts of uh, the empire. And it was so full of sin 
Corinth was. If you were a first century person there in the Greco-Roman world and you had fallen into sexual idolatry and sexual immorality, you were said to have been Corinthianized is the language of the time. So it was a city, wasn't it, that was ripe for the ministry of Jesus Christ. It was a city that Paul was wise to go and try to plant a church in. Before he goes about planting the church, notice what he finds, verse 2 and 3. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and as he went to see them, he did so because they were of the same trade that he was, for they were tent makers by trade." It's more common than you might realize that in that ancient first century world that Jewish rabbis, they would have a trade. They would have this kind of vocation in which they were trained. And Paul clearly was trained in that trade of tent making. It would have been a quite profitable trade even there in Corinth as so many people would come into this vital port city and need a temporary shelter. Uh, Tent making could also be a more general trade that just refers to any type of leatherworking that was going on there. And Priscilla and Aquila, these people that will show up in vital significant scenes later on in, in Paul's ministry, he meets there for the first time and he finds partners there in the ministry. Not only are they going about, uh, we'll soon see, they're going about this just physical work of making tents, of dealing with leather. Uh, they're going about that spiritual work of seeing a church planted. And I've always thought it interesting, maybe you have too, that uh, Paul's physical vocation, if we can call it that, was one of building tents. Uh, what was his spiritual vocation but building God's tent, which is the church of, of Jesus Christ. And incidentally enough, there's something hidden away in uh, verse 2 with this edict of Claudius that the Christians were banished from Rome. It's something that's clear enough in the historical record, but Uh, For our purposes today, uh, what you need to know is, of course, Acts as a book, uh, what it's doing, it's narrating the advance of the gospel in the early church to the nations. By this point, we haven't heard anything, have we, about the gospel going forth to Rome, where Priscilla and Aquila were banished from. Yet the gospel had what? Gone forth to Rome. And so often it's true that God is moving in unnoticed and unreported and even unseen areas that we might be fixated on a particular geographical location, but God is always working. God is always moving throughout the world for his purposes. And so as he's building these physical tents, perhaps during the day at various points, uh, Paul is trying to build this spiritual tent, a local church there in Corinth. Notice verse 4, he goes about his ordinary strategy of reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. And he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. He's got partners, partners in Jesus Christ. And now in verse 5, in the next few verses, we see him preaching uh, Jesus Christ. Because when Silas and Timothy arrived, notice verse 5, from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus Uh, Kids, you can circle in your Bible that word occupied. It's one of my favorite words when it comes to ministry. It's a word that gets used all over the New Testament. It more uh, properly means something like hold together. So you'll find it used in certain gospel passages when it speaks actually about a a demon possessing a person and kind of having control over that individual. Uh, You'll find it also used about these crowds that press in on Jesus 
and they hold him in one place. It's the exact same verb that the Apostle Paul is going to use in a, a later letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where he says, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ occupies us. The love of Christ possesses us. And so you can see here that what was his preoccupation there in Corinth now that this offering had come from Macedonia with Silas and Timothy, freed up from his earthly cares and worldly concerns. He's preoccupied with testifying that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. It's this controlling love of Christ that guarantees that he's held in place there in his ministry, that he would preach, that he would teach, that he would speak, that he would share the truth of the Savior. I wonder what affection, with honest self-examination, what affection you might say today controls you, an affection that holds you in place, an affection you might even say possesses you and even dictates then what you do. Surely there's some challenge and conviction we, we should see here that there's this occupation with the word. There's this all-controlling consummation with Jesus Christ and his love that, that keeps Paul exactly where he is, preaching the gospel. And not surprisingly, it generates a negative response from the Jews there in the synagogue at Corinth. There's a pastor who is one of the more famous preachers in America right now. He's had an unusual influence in the broader Bible church world of the last uh, few decades. And some years ago, he was called to be uh, the pastor of a very large and influential uh, church in Alabama. And this pastor came, and as he faithfully does, he, he preached the gospel uh, clearly and directly and as he always does, he declared the gospel, which is one of sovereign grace, that it's not based on anything that human beings can do, will do, or are doing, lest we boast. It's not by works. It's by God's grace alone, his own purpose that was manifested in Jesus Christ and this uh, gospel of sovereign grace uh, preached there in this large and influential church. It began to upset the influential leaders there at the church, and they began to oppose him. The opposition arose to such a, a point where he was a, actually kicked out of that church. And I've heard him tell this story a, a number of times where he cleared out his stuff from his office. He piled it into his trunk, into his car, and he pulled out of the parking lot. And if you were watching his car pull out of the parking lot that day, you would have seen him stop right at the edge of the parking lot before he crossed into the street. And uh, the side door opened and out popped the pastor. And kids, if, if you were looking maybe across the street or perhaps across the church playground, what you would have seen is this pastor get out and start shaking his legs. And you might have thought, what is he doing? This shaking leg dance there as he's leaving the church one last time. And what he said was, I was shaking the dust off my feet. Because why? They refused the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you might think, of course, well, why did he do that? Well, Jesus himself, what did he tell the apostles? If you go into an area and preach the truth and they don't receive that truth, when you leave that location, do the shaking dance. Shake the dust off your feet as what? A symbol of judgment upon their lack of response. And you see now Paul begins to shake. Look at verse 6. They opposed him and reviled him, and he shook out his garments. The language there of reviled, it's actually the language of, of blaspheming. 
Uh, they were uttering blasphemy against the truth that Jesus is the Christ for whom all those in the synagogue were looking for. And it's, it's true, isn't it? So sad, but realize it's ordinary that an unbelieving world can hear the, the truth of Jesus Christ proclaimed clearly, directly, and we trust graciously, and still blaspheme and revile and oppose hearing any more of it, trying to silence and shut it out. Uh, Paul, of course, is silenced there in the synagogue, and you see something about uh, Paul's missionary mindset because the text goes on to tell us that he's going to erect a new preaching station. And in God's providence, that preaching station happens to be only a few steps away from the synagogue. Uh, Look at what we're told in verse 7. He left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and his house just happened to be next door to the synagogue. So it's as though he walked out the front door of the synagogue, walked in the front door of Titius Justice, and he said, there in a public place of worship, I was preaching the gospel to the Jews. They reviled, they blasphemed, they opposed, I shook out my garments, now I'm just walking next door to a private home to preach the gospel to Gentiles, the ones to whom I was commissioned to preach Christ. But notice uh, the first convert there in Corinth, it's not a Gentile. It's actually a quite influential Jew. Uh, Look at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So you see, it's the planting of the Corinthian church in this crazy sinful city. Gospel fruit is flowering as far as Paul can see. And you might be right to think and expect that such gospel fruit would be energizing and motivating Paul to such an extent he would want to stay there in Corinth. He would want to keep on seeing more of it show up. But the text goes on to say it's actually the exact opposite. His heart was failing there in the preaching ministry. So it leads us to our third point, the promise of Christ. He's got partners in Christ. He's preaching Christ. And now we see promise of Christ. I know another pastor who speaks often of what he calls his Corinthian moment. He had been in the city for some time ministering the gospel, and uh, the Lord had brought lots of fruit and, and much blessing to the ministry, but it was a ministry that found lots of affliction and suffering belonging to it as well. And He tells this story one time of being in the afternoon somewhere in this kind of scenic area and was was praying for the Lord to send him off to a new place. It's just gotten too hard there in the city. And he just happened to have his Bible open to Acts chapter 18. And he cast his eyes down as he was praying in that very moment to what follows in our text, verse 9 and 10. A promise from Jesus Christ. One that, just as it's going to do with Paul, it keeps him there in the city. Because why? God's presence is what is necessary so often for God's servants to persevere in the ministry. For you see what the Lord Jesus says in a night vision, verse 9 and 10. He came to Paul and said, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And if you've been a careful student of Acts by this point, you, you would think, At least if you're anything like me, you would think, 
This man of all people has shown anything but being scared. And yet, if you know your Bible well, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. In ways, if you piece the story together, and clearly in this passage, Paul wanted out of a fruitful ministry. That's how difficult it had become, certainly this constant opposition, this constant persecution, this constant intimidation. And the Lord says, no, stay right there. And why can you do it? Because I am with you. If you scan your Bible well, you know that God often calls people into ministry, into leadership positions. And one of the common experiences that belongs to that mantle of leadership in ministry is some degree of being afraid, some degree of being fear, fearful. It's why if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31, when God is assuring Moses in the midst of his fright, he says, don't worry, I will not fail you or forsake you. He says the same thing to Joshua in chapter 1, verse 5 of Joshua's book. Be strong and courageous. I will not fail you nor forsake you. To the entire corporate people of Israel, he says the exact same thing in Isaiah chapter 41. To the new covenant church, it's the same promise reiterated in Hebrews 13, verse 5. I will not fail you nor forsake you. In the midst of fear, what is the promise that God most often speaks to his beloved children? Don't forget I'm right here. And don't you realize that so much of, of fear is at its core for so many just forgetfulness, forgetting the supply of strength that's yours in the spirit, forgetting the promise that God has spoken to you in his word, forgetting the assurance of Jesus Christ that even he uttered to the apostles that applies to us as well, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Paul, you can persevere in your ministry. Your heart is failing, but you gotta keep doing the heart work of preaching, not just because I'm with you, but I got more people in this city, Paul, that your preaching is going to find. You see verse 10 as it ends. He says, not just I'm with you. There's a promise here of protection. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And I hope even as you hear that final phrase that you can honestly consider yourself this day as numbered among Christ's people. That he might say over your very heart even this day, that one's mine here in North Texas. But you see that the Lord reigns sovereign over his people, doesn't he? There's more sheep to be brought into the fold. There's more souls to be won. And that reality of God's sovereignty does nothing more than say, Paul, get out there and preach. And maybe you know how Many people who confess the truth of Scripture that God is sovereign over salvation sometimes wonder how that truth interfaces with the summons, the call, the, the command that, that we would go speak of Jesus Christ. And you see something of what the Bible is trying to tell us even in reconciling those two truths that sometimes people think are opposites of each other. He's saying, Paul, I've got more people in this city. Go preach and you'll find them. Don't you think uh, that God has more people in this county and you speaking is how the Lord intends to find them. That he's got more people even in this country and that Christ's church being faithful to the commission to speak and not be afraid 
is the very means by which he's appointed in his sovereign rule to go find those sheep that are outside of the fold. So he's a promise from Christ. And it's a promise that he is faithful to. Look at verse 11. Paul stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And with this pastor I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, talks about his Corinthian moment early on. Uh, people close to him said, does that mean you're only going to stay in the city another 18 months? Because that seems to be all Paul stayed there in Corinth. But Paul continued uh, faithfully persevering in the ministry because he had a promise of Jesus Christ's presence. And it'd be a natural place, wouldn't it? Right there in verse 11. It'd be a natural place to end this passage. You know, kind of this nice bookend to the challenge that Paul was facing in Corinth. But remember, Christ said, not just I'm with you, he promised him protection. No one's going to attack you to harm you. And quite quickly, Christ makes good on that promise because you need to see, fourth of all, in our text, protection by Christ. Notice verse 12 through 15. We don't know how long has passed, but in time, when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, Paul is persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law. You need to understand that as the Roman law. And then, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to yourselves, I refuse to be a judge of these things. You know, students, you have these times where you come across passages in Scripture that, you know, on a first reading, you just think, well, there really isn't a whole lot there. You know, I mean, Gallio said, leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered with, with Paul. You know, take care of it yourselves, Jews, and then they proceed to be physical and violent. You see something about the intimidation and opposition Paul constantly faced as uh, they take this ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, and then beat him in the public eye. Uh, what's the point here? Uh, students, there's actually something uh, quite significant and uh, no doubt quite vital to the advance of the gospel that's alluded to here in this passage. Gallio is the younger brother of this famous Stoic philosopher named Seneca. Gallio would eventually become the tutor of the young emperor Nero. Gallio hears the Jews say, you need to rule that Christianity is outside of tolerated religions in Rome. That's what really the Jews are saying there. But what does Gallio say? Christianity is just, you know, kind of part of the Jewish face. Leave me alone. You guys figure it out. So what has he said? In, in the course of a few words, he's given Christianity tolerated status in the Roman emperor as a, a religion underneath the auspices of Judaism. So that Christianity, if you know your church history well, for, for many decades would be confused, actually, with Judaism as it continued to advance in the world. It's a precedent-setting reality here by this proconsul named Gallio, uh, that Christ protects his gospel. Christ protects his ministers. Christ protects his members as they go forth. So partners in Christ, preaching Christ, a promise from Christ, protection by Christ. These are means, no doubt, that enable us to persevere in the ministry God has given to us. I would imagine... Many of you spent some time on Wednesday of this week with your TV on, tuned into a news station, watching some type of footage of Hurricane Ian preparing to smash into Florida, or watching it smash into Florida. 
It was just the day before, if I remember correctly, that Florida's governor had issued a mandatory evacuation warning for 12 counties that were going to be within that most destructive path of the hurricane. And you wonder, don't you, uh, how many of those citizens obeyed the warning that, that heeded the declaration. And I tell you that here as we're going to come to our conclusion, because I want you to see two final things in which we must persevere if we're going to have something of this apostolic ministry known among us. Now, the first of which is we must persevere in preaching that warns. Preaching that warns. In a book that's full of preaching, in a book that's full of sermons that call for a response, uh, what we have here, don't we? The only thing really seemingly uttered from Paul's lips is a warning to the hearers there at the synagogue. Look at verse 6. All the way through the end, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go on to the Gentiles. And every single Jew that would have been there in the synagogue that day would have immediately known what Paul meant by your blood be on your own heads. They would have known their book of Ezekiel well. They would have known thus chapter 3 and 33 well, where God had appointed Ezekiel to be a watchman among the nation of Israel to warn them of the coming judgment if they didn't return to the Lord. And what he said to Ezekiel, if you don't warn them, their blood will be on your hands. But if you do warn them, their blood will be on their own heads. Now what's Paul saying here? I've warned you. Christ is Jesus, and you've blasphemed him. Your blood be on your own heads. And we need to remember, don't we, that, that proper preaching of the gospel, it does include warnings. Because surely as he was reasoning and persuading the people there in the synagogue, he was preaching the, the gospel, this, this good news that Jesus is the Christ, that the Messiah has come and we know his name and the Messiah has come who's going to deliver people from sin, Satan and death. The Messiah has come and he brings forgiveness of sins. The Messiah has come and he grants unto you the promise of eternal life. The Messiah has come and sinners like you and me can be welcomed into God's family. The Messiah has come and you must receive him. If you don't, the blood is on your own head. Some of you in here today might leave this church, and like those Jews in that ancient synagogue, never will hear the gospel preached again. There's a warning, isn't there? The blood is on your own hands. The good news of Jesus Christ is that he takes that blood that should be shed because of your own sin by you unto eternal judgment. He shed his perfect and precious blood that he might take the penalty of sin that you deserve. But how many of us even might leave this room today and, Lord willing, we come back next week to hear another sermon. But the Spirit pricks our conscience to realize there might be people in our own life, friends, family members, places of our vocation, that we might not have warned about the reality of eternity just yet. And it's blood that will be on our hands. If we do not speak. So preaching perseveringly means warning. I want you to see finally. Is that we must persevere. Not just in preaching that warns. We must persevere in the word that sustains. 
Because you might be in here today and you have this anguish, you have this anxiety, you have this affliction, you have this suffering, you have this hardship, you have this hurt. And like Paul, you want out. And God says, no, you stay right there. And what's going to hold you together right there? Is it not the exact same thing that held Paul together right there? But the promise of a Savior who is right there. I wonder if you are planning to hear the word this week. How much have you heard the word last week? Maybe times in which we want to tap out too quick. It's because we're not sustaining ourselves in that word. That promise of presence that enables us to persevere in the midst of whatever the hardship is. Christ's promise of presence. That's what you need in order to persevere. Let's pray together. Father, we do recognize that perhaps so many could be in this room today that arrive just like Paul did at Corinth with weakness and fear and much trembling. And we do pray that your spirit by this word of promise would comfort us, would even bring us the grace of Jesus Christ that draws near to us in the preaching of the gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ that has grown near to us even in the spirit that resides within his people. Help us to persevere, to run our race with endurance, to fight the good fight of faith, always looking unto your Son in whose name we pray. Amen.